welcome to a brand new episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. G. And I am Dr. Rad. Although I have to admit, Dr. G, this isn't feeling so brand new. I feel like we should have full disclosure to our listeners. It finally happened. I don't even know how many episodes we've recorded. I suspect it's over 150 at this stage. But finally, we have had significant audio issues with an episode that we recorded to the point where we had to just check it out and re-record. So sad. So I sad. I know. I know. But hey, at least it's an interesting period in Roman history. It is a fascinating period in Roman history. And we're picking up, I think it bears a second conversation, even though this might be the only one that Alistair's here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are right in the depths of the second decemvirate. And for us, this is a completely fascinating period because there is so much going on politically and things are starting to unravel in what is essentially the early republic. And so up until this point, for a bit of context, we've been following these decemvirs, this group of 10 men who have been trying to put together a whole bunch of laws to make them publicly accessible to everybody. But along the way, what has happened is some of those decimvirs have gotten a little bit too big for their booties, and now they'd like to stay in power forever, please. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. And along the way, on, on top of doing that, they have committed two crimes that have really stood out for the Roman people at the time and forever after, so it would seem, one of which was the murder of our hero, the Roman Achilles, a plebeian par excellence. And the other is the attempted abduction and seemingly planned rape of a citizen plebeian maiden, Virginia, or Virginia, if you prefer. It depends on where you learnt Latin, I think. Um, (laughs) I never did, Dr. G. I never did. (laughs) Amazing. Uh, Um. Yeah, this is, we've got this situation where the demise of the Roman Achilles has really put off a whole bunch of Roman soldiers who are out on the front lines. And while this has been happening, this issue with Virginia and uh, Appius Claudius's apparent taste for young women, um, which is crossing all boundaries of class, but also morality. And it has really played out badly for Appius Claudius as the lead decemvir. And the plebeian family around Virginia has really rallied um, in ways that are tragic and terrible. Yeah, so last episode we saw the shocking and public murder of Virginia by her own father in the middle of the forum as he tries to protect her chastity and her virginity I guess there's a kind of different things, but I'm feeling like they're kind of a little bit different now that I'm saying them out loud. (laughs) They are intimately connected in the Roman mind. That is true. Yeah. So um, Virginius, her father, has committed this murder and he has had to obviously flee the city. And he has quite cleverly fled to the army that he was stationed with. And in my account, I just got through telling you about the impassioned speech he had made to them, trying to sort of win them over to his side and say, yeah, look, I know that I'm covered in blood, but there's a good explanation. And trust me, you're going to get want to get on board with this because it could happen to you otherwise. And so we can see that there's this real groundswell and that they're going to try and use this murder and pin it on Appius as he, he's being the ultimate criminal, the ultimate villain here. They're going to try and use this to sort of rally the people against the second December. And that's essentially where we're up to as we lead into this episode. Uh, Wiginius has had to flee the city uh, to get away from this situation that has been created by murdering his own daughter in public. Uh, The body of Virginia is kind of being taken around the place and sort of used as a symbol in various ways. Uh, And what we're going to see is the way that all of this plays out politically for Rome and also on that personal level for this particular family as well. So I think it's time to jump in. Let's do it.
All right, Dr. G, so you got to hear all about the speech that Livy included from Virginius last time, where he definitely focused on the whole, you know, look what happened to me, this could happen to you, Appius's lusts and passions are now invading and violating my personal home. Okay, what are you going to do about it, people? Are you with me? That's where I kind of left you. But I'm dying to hear what Dionysius makes of this because he's known for his speechifying. He is a man who loves a good speech, never misses the opportunity to go for a little bit of rhetoric. And that is definitely the case here. So I think at the end of our last episode, I'd gotten uh, Virginius to the spot where he's in the camp. Yes. And he's about to do the things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do the things. To do the things do the mouth. things. Yeah, yeah, to do yeah. the things with the mouth and the tongue. Maybe mm-hmm. some teeth. I don't know. <laughs> he's like, he's like, give me a soapbox. And people are like, here, here, take this box. Get on it, man. And he's like, I'm so angry. And he's all covered in blood. And he speaks. And he's like, think of the abuses that are happening here. It's like, I'm covered in blood. I am a citizen. And he, he starts to talk about the way that the Desenvirs are operating outside of law without consent of the people and that they know no loyalty. And so he's kind of building this atmosphere and he's like, you know, those guys, they don't care about us. They're doing everything illegally. You know, they're treating us like weaklings. Uh, He does say that they uh, treat us like women. Um, You know what? I feel like that is in bad taste given what he's just done. (laughs) I want to be honest. I agree with everything else. But yeah. The, yeah, the patriarchal undertones always coming through there. Yeah, I agree like, with everything else he's saying. The December <laughs> are the worst. <laughs> and he's like, they are actually um, abusing our temples and our gods and our ancestors through the way that they're behaving. So he's like, he starts to mention people's aged fathers, you know, your betrothed wives, your marriageable daughters, your young brawny sons. You know, and he's you know, like all of this rhetorical flower that Dionysus of Halicarnassus simply loves. And he's like, so he builds up this real vibe of like, they're like, yeah, we're being hard done by. This is terrible. We're a great people. And he's like, okay, so the thing that you need to know is that sometimes you have to take up arms against the people in power. And they're like, oh, 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 no. <laughs> Oh, wait a minute. He's like, yeah, this is, this is, this situation is comparable to the moment where the Tarquins are thrown out of the monarchy. This is a parallel to the moment that Lucretia endures. So he brings out that big figure from the end of the monarchical period um, and this sort of what a lot of like scholars uh, tend to talk about is a bit of a trope as well, like the sort of the woman who is sacrificed or who sacrifices herself for the good of the state. Oh, yeah. I, I definitely, I think we all are getting very strong aftermath of Lucretia's suicide moments. <laughs> there is a lot of that vibe coming through. And you can sense, even though there are some differences in the way that these stories unfold, Lucretia takes her own life. Yeah. Virginia is murdered by her father. There's a sense in which women are taking the fall for the problems that happen in the state. Yeah. Uh, and this is big. Well, it's also like a, it's like, it's like an, it's an innocence as well, isn't it? Like a, yeah, something that is meant to be so pure and something that's so re- protected and respected within their community and it's being crushed like a delicate flower. <laughs> Yeah, and it's that kind of thing, the the way that uh, patriarchal systems sort of place women in particular roles is by sort of suggesting that there is this whole innocence at play, there is this chastity, virginity, oh, virginity, I should say, now I'm getting (laughs) carried away, I know, virginity is given a a sort of a really strong uh, symbolic meaning even though we can't precisely define what it is. Um, All of these things are happening to women. And when push comes to shove uh, with politically dangerous situations, we get these moments where all of a sudden those things are in danger or they, they find ways to call them into question. We mm. see that a lot with Festival Virgins as well. But I'll, yeah, I'll stop myself going down that path oh, for now. There's a rabbit hole. Avoid, <laughs> avoid. 
jumping away back to McGinnis's <laughs> speech. And he's like, isn't the situation that we're in now actually worse than what was happening at the end of the Kings? You know, it, I think it almost was. <laughs> I mean, it's bad. It's definitely not good. Yeah. And it's like, how much tyranny are you going to tolerate before you say enough is enough? Mm. And then he whips out what I think is a really provocative statement. And I don't know whether Livy touches on this. He says, I'm not the only man who had a daughter superior in beauty to others whom Appius had openly attempted to violate and besmirch. Now, see, that is crazy to me because, yeah, I think in Livy, whilst, again, it's not like he explicitly rules it out. Uh, and look, I wouldn't put anything past Appius, Claudius, but it seems as though what has happened with this family it seems like it is the first time. Like, it seems like this is Appius crossing a line and they're like, whoa, you did not just go there. And that's kind of why there's so much outrage because it is him crossing into new, terrible territory, <laughs> you know? And, and so, yeah, it's it's interesting that he mentions that. I mean, obviously we have been talking about how out of control the 2nd December is in terms of how they are abusing their power with, property with beating and murdering people and all that kind of atmosphere that's going on so it's not like you know obviously we know it's bad at the moment but this this attempt to seize a, a virtuous maiden of you know outstanding beauty and you know who's betrothed to another and her father is a soldier like all that kind of stuff it seems like that is crossing a fresh line it does. And yet, as far as Wiginius is concerned, there's apparently this is old news. This has been happening perhaps for a while. Mm. And this incident might be different for the way in which Wiginius was able to step in. And this True. may actually explain, at least in Dionysius' account, while why everybody sort of rushes around so quickly at that moment Wiginius is seized in public. Mm. Uh, if this is something that people have seen before and are becoming increasingly concerned about, this might prompt really swift action, which would allow Wiginius to be able to get back to the city in time to intervene. Um, not that anybody's very impressed with his intervention. <laughs> um, what he eventually brings this down to is, do you really think that this will stop with my daughter? Mm. What about your daughter's? He's like, the desires of tyrants are naturally limitless. Yeah, and that's where you can see that classic Greek idea, which has become part of the Roman psyche as well, of needing to have moderation. And that's what that's what men are meant to have in this society. That's why they're seen to be superior to everyone else, like slaves and women, because they're capable of exercising superior self-control and therefore moderation in their appetites. And, and this is absolutely characteristic of the tyrannical figure in a lot of classical literature, that they are excessive in all things. So it can be obviously avarice, but in this case, it is lust. Yeah, I mean, so we get this sense that for a tyrant is like that adage that absolute power corrupts absolutely, yeah. uh, starts to come into play. And so he's wraps up his speech by really saying, look, are you really going to allow this to happen or are we going to find our liberty in rising up against this before it just keeps getting worse? You know, what occasion would it take for you to take the next step that's so important? And yes. the soldiers at that point are like, well, let's do it. Let's get to Rome. Uh, we can we can rush in. Uh, the centurions are super on side which is, uh, I think, an important point that comes through in Dionysius of Halicarnassus' account mm. because he's like, the, the centurions are kind of like this layer between the soldiery and the sort of like the general management of the army. So they kind of cross that threshold a little bit. They take the orders from, yeah, <laughs> they take orders from above and they distribute <laughs> them to below. And so they're this touchstone and they all start to to turn and they're like, oh, you know what? Well, we can we can look after you, we can make sure nothing happens to you. We'll protect you, Wiginius. Uh, we'll make sure that it's all right. Don't you worry. And 
while they're saying that, rumor is spreading uh, towards the the tents of the generals. They're sort of catching. They're like, is that an ill wind I hear this evening? <laughs> I can smell something. Smells like rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> it's got that tang of revolution. <laughs> We're like, uh, just uh, lock that tent door, will you, Jeeves? Uh, <laughs> need a little extra protection while I sleep this evening. So they sort of get wind, that they sense that there's something up. Uh, obviously, the soldiers have been up all night being a bit rowdy, and they're like, oh, that's no good. And <laughs> they decide that they should probably bring Wiginius into custody uh, the next morning. That would and... be a smart idea, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, we'll, we'll bring him into custody. We'll, we'll chill out, man. Okay, it's not that much of a problem. You're a soldier. You know what soldiers <laughs> do? Soldiery. Um, and they're like, we should also probably maybe prepare to like have a bit of like some forward momentum with this army. It's a time to do some sorties and stuff. And so they're like, there's nothing quite like distracting the soldiers with a bit of war. Oh my um, God. Honestly, the patricians have the most tired bag of tricks that you've ever seen. It's always the <laughs> same thing again and again. But to put this in context, because it's been a while, I think, since we really focused on this, if we wind back the clock a little bit, because it seems like a long time has passed, but it hasn't really, to one of our previous episodes, the, things are not going well for Rome when they're fighting at the moment, because largely because everyone hates the December. They don't really feel like making them look amazing by having you know these glorious battles on their hands. So morale is low. Things have not been going well in these external conflicts up to this point. So it's probably probably worth mentioning that. <laughs> Yeah, Rome's position is not great right now. Um, and they are fighting a war on at least two fronts. Yeah. Um, because they've divided their forces. And so, I mean, probably it wouldn't go astray for them to try and like carve out some territory for themselves or at least, you know, solidify some boundaries. <laughs> but it, it really doesn't quite work out that way. So, you know, the sun rises and the generals call in the centurions. They're like, you need to arrest that guy, uh, Wiginius, what's his name? And they basically laugh at in the generals faces so wow. this is yeah and when we're talking generals we're talking about like deaths and veers <laughs> and so they're like no uh, we've been here before um, and they basically call out uh, this tactic and it's like you're always trying to get us to to go and fight somebody where as, when we need to do something at home it's like you know stuff is going wrong here you know, Rome has some issues right now. And it's like, you think we're going to go to war for you? you got another thing coming, buddy. That is pretty crazy because the Decimers have so much power. I mean, that's kind of the, that's a jam, you know. There's no right of appeal to these guys. So it's crazy that not only are they standing up to the patricians um, and, the, and like the upper classes and their sort of agenda that has been pushed all this time, but they're standing up to the Decembers who have like ultimate control. Yeah. And they're basically also saying that the Decembers are terrible generals as well. Cause part of what <laughs> they go on, <laughs> well, they go on to say that like you guys lack courage and we've just been camping here in a cowardly fashion. We haven't been doing anything. All you've done is got us out of the city and you're actually just permitting our own territory to be ravaged over there and while we've been sitting here. And we've conquered that territory before under generals who were better than you. And wow. Wow. These, these are some bulls. These are some kahunas. Yeah. I like it. People I have like gotten it. really riled up here. Yeah. I love, the, I love the idea of them going into their tent and being like, <laughs> you suck. <laughs> I'd love to help you out, but you're terrible and I shan't do it. No. Well, see, this is also interesting to me because things play out differently in Livy's account in the particulars. Like the overall gist, as we often find, is the same. But, yeah, I've got a little bit of a different play-by-play -play here. So if, if I might, I'm just going to pick up at the end of Virginius's speech and tell you what unfolds from there. Please so in, do. Yeah, in Livy's account, you know, he, he does not always do the, the big speeches. I, in fact, I would say he actually very rarely does a big speech, but, you know, big for Livy. So we know it's a, we know it's a, a moment when we have a speech. So I've got, a, I've got this speech and, you know, it's very impassioned. And so I kind of left at the end of the last episode of wondering what, how are the people, how are the soldiers he's talking to, how are they going to respond? 
And no big surprises. This is where we are in sync. They are completely won over by him. And they're like, yes, yes, you may have committed murder of your daughter, but I can see what you're saying. Appius is clearly the problem here. The December are the worst. We are completely behind you. So, so far, so good. But then there starts to be some reports mingling through the crowd that actually the Decemvirate have already been overthrown. So, so much for that rallying speech. Nice what? work, Virginius. But <laughs> it's already done. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, yeah, yeah. This, as, as it turns out, what we will see, of course, is that this is not strictly true. Like, sure, I think we can all see the writing on the wall, but no, they're not really, like, over yet we're still technically living through the December but yeah the rumor is going around that you know what I think I think the December is is done and, and Appius Claudius is basically dead and he's in exile and so <laughs> you you might think that this would be a moment where they go huh well I well. guess the job <laughs> is done then <laughs> Guess I won't worry about that revolution I had planned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is this is partly because I think uh, some people have accompanied Virginius to the camp. So these are reports that are kind of coming in from Rome, from civilians who have you know followed along and are, are mingling throughout the crowd. But this is not where this is going to go. So obviously, as you pointed out, there are some Decembers who are actually attached to this army who like realize what's going on. And they, they try and calm the situation down because they, they can sense that this is a troublesome situation. They try a few different, you know, tactics, um, you know, trying to put it down, but nothing really works. You know, everyone's just basically ignoring them as they run around and try and quell, you know, this rebellion. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're not listening to you. <laughs> you are insignificant to us. You are nothing. You are background noise, buddy. But they decide that they're still going to march on Rome. Okay, so wait a, this is, wait a minute. Yeah, they decide <laughs> that this is still a necessary thing to do. So in Livy's account, they all band together and they march on Rome, marching to the Aventine, and they take possession of this. And they start urging the plebeians to rise up, okay, to make sure that they can truly overthrow this December and, most importantly, I think, go back to the situation that they had before where they had, of course, the tribunes of the pleb to protect their interests. Um, and so they really are framing this in a sense of, you know, regain your liberty, get back the tribunes of the plebs. We need to have that protection back. Make Rome plebeian again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. All right. Okay. So there is, I've, Livy feels like he's racing ahead to me um, in comparison to where Dionysius of Halicarnassus is up to in his what? current narrative. Livy, Livy, <laughs> racing ahead. <laughs> Never. Just, just ripping through the details. Yes, All right. Yes. <laughs> to pull things back a little bit, uh, Dionysius of Halicarnassus still has everybody in the camps uh, to the south of Rome. So oh, I, I had no doubt. I had no doubt. <laughs> we'll be there for months. <laughs> <laughs> we're not leaving there just yet. Right. Uh, there's a where Gideus has to give another speech. Ah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we can't leave before all the speechifying is done. That's right. So where Gideus is the next morning, uh, there's a warrant out for his arrest. The centurions have refused to like do it, but it seems like he's got a sort of a protective guard of some kind around him because he's still able to speak and people are still listening on the ground. So right. he's back on his soapbox. And he's now really angry and <laughs> fair enough. And he's like, look, we have to go now. This is how they're going to deal with it. They're going to arrest me. They're going to force us to go to war again. And for what? And we need change. We've got to take the standards and we've got to march towards Rome. Everyone's like, whoa. <laughs> so he's like, let's take the army home. And this is a huge moment for the soldiery because the Roman standards have a sacral quality to them. Mm. And this is why whenever you hear about Roman standards and Roman armies, people get very interested and intrigued because they are imbued with a lot of meaning and symbolism. And they're a sign in some respects of 
the gods justifying the war that is taking place. So wherever right. they're carried, they have to be looked after. Yeah. So all of this meaning is imbued in them. And military oaths are all bound up in making an oath to the standard. And so there's kind of a sense that soldiers are tied to their standard uh, in really particular ways. And so if they were to take those standards and head off in a direction that has not been sanctioned uh, by higher up generals in the field, this would be seen as not just breaking the law, but potentially breaking with the peace of the gods. Wow, that's pretty crazy. This is big, and Wagenius is like, let's do it. And some people are like, yeah, woo, yeah, I like revolution. That's what you got to do. And other people are like, oh, no, wait a minute. You want us to take the standards with us back to Rome. I thought that this is a very different situation now. I have some questions, and I'm not sure I can do that. Interesting. Wait, were they were they okay with marching on Rome without the standards? It's it just seems standards. like it. Okay, all right. Okay. Yeah, it seems like it. And... I mean, that's that's kind of the gist that comes through here is that people who were previously quite enthusiastic about just abandoning and heading back to the city are now like, oh, well, this is a whole different thing. We didn't know you wanted it to be like an organized army military standard situation. Right, and yeah. Wiginius is like, but guys, for those standards to mean anything, they would have had to be held legitimately by the people in power. And this December is illegal. So mm. the meaning that has been invested in these standards is already tainted and we can move them because we are more vested with sacral power than they are because we will be doing the right thing. Well, let's just say the standards have that spiritual tie to the men who serve under them. So yes, I can see how I can see how taking taking the standards with them because they have more of that connection, you know, that, that legitimate connection. And it gives a sense of legitimacy to what they're trying to do. Totally. So yeah. at that point, the agreement is made that the soldiers will take the standards back to Rome. Right. And so this is where it's like, it's happening. It's on. As far as the Romans are happening, it's as on as it could possibly be. They're like, yes, we've got the sacral power. No, the decimates are illegal in tyranny. We're going to do this thing. Let's head towards the city. And so they do. They march all day. Uh, and they arrive at Rome at nightfall. It's dark and people are initially on the street being like, uh, who what now? <laughs> uh, there, there is an army inside the gates. Guys, guys. <laughs> yeah, well, this, this would be terrifying because Roman armies, whether they, Roman armies are not meant to be inside the city gates or, or, or inside the pomerium, I should say. And yeah, so it would probably be a bit like, wait, what is this? Is this an invasion? What is happening here? And then once you realize that they're technically friendly troops, at the same time, you might be like, well, if you are friendly troops, what are you doing here? <laughs> You're not supposed and, to be here. <laughs> and it's established pretty early on that they are friendly because they're like, oh, hey, Joe. Oh, I'm just back from the camp. Oh, 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 mate, it's you. The rebellion. So the rebellion. <laughs> have you heard about it, Bob? Yeah. Oh, yeah. what? No. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> bloody right, mate. <laughs> bloody oath. It's about it's about bloody time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they head off to uh, the Aventine. So we've got a nice parallel there. And they make their camp. So they're like, all right, this is a good defensive spot. It's on the top of a hill. We like it here. And they make a decision to create a body of ten. Uh, in the in a way to maybe to rival the decimals, maybe ten became the magic number for them <laughs> for this very reason. It's catchy. They, it's catchy. Yeah, they're like, you got ten, we got ten. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and these ten are military tribunes, and they're appointed by the by the armed force that has come north from Mount Agaidum and made their camp on the Avatar. And they're like, these are the people who are going to speak on our behalf. Okay, so surprisingly, I actually have a little bit of detail that I can add to this because I, I do also have some elections happening amongst these, these rebels. But before I get to that, I've actually got a little bit of a snapshot of scenes from the Senate. <laughs> so when, in my account, when they all, you know, take up occupation of the Aventine, Livy then switches to 
having a bit of a reaction of, you know, <laughs> what's going on in Rome? How are people feeling about this? So three, they decide to send out, um, they decide to convene the Senate, basically. Um, so Spurius Oppius, who we've mentioned in a previous episode as being uh, one of the men that is kind of trying to put out fires, in, um, you know, on behalf of uh, Appius Claudius, who's just, you know, lit them everywhere, and Virginia, Virginius as well. So he calls the Senate together and he's like, um, there's a bit of a situation. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed, but the Aventine seems to be occupied by some people that are hostile to the Decemvirate and potentially, you know, just Rome in general right now. Don't know what's going on there. What are we going to do about that? And the Senate decide that they can't actually be too harsh in their reaction to things. And that's because the, they recognise that the Decembers essentially started this whole situation. It's entirely their fault that things have come to such a point that the plebeians have had to be like, right, that's it, we're out, we're off, we're going to be you know, threatening you militarily by sitting here on this hill watching you guys on other hills. <laughs> um, so they're like, it's entirely your fault, so we just got to be you know, kind of measured in our response here. So they decide to send out three ex-consuls to ask the people on the Aventine, um, why are you here? Why have you deserted your posts? Just curious. Doesn't seem like a normal thing for you to be doing. So they send out Spurius Tarpeius, Gaius Julius, ooh, and Publius Sulpicius. Okay, so sort of ask what is going on here? What is happening? It kind of seems like you've got Rome under siege, okay? Now, this is where things get a little bit hilarious on the plebeian side. They hadn't really talked about who was going to be their nominated spokesperson at this point in time. And so they're all kind of looking around going, you say something, you say something, you speak to the consul. Do you want to speak to the consul? No, I'm just waiting for somebody else to say something. Come on. Okay, and but so no consoles. Yeah, nobody really wants to talk because they're like, if I put myself forward, then I'm gonna take the fall if this all goes horribly wrong. So everyone's kind of looking at their feet and looking at the sky and not really knowing what to say. So I imagine this is super awkward right now. Because it certainly seemed like this was going to be, you know, an armed takeover of the city, and yet it's collapsing into chaos very quickly but in the end they all decide kind of together in Livy's account that they're not going to speak to anybody except for Lucius Valerius and Marcus Horatius who we have yeah. heard from before of course mm. yeah, yeah, so, yeah yeah so these guys are patricians but they're not the worst patricians you'll ever meet <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. So these guys have found their interests aligning more and more with the plebeians uh, of Rome, mostly because they also think the Second Decemvirate are the worst, and they also think that they are holding power illegally. And so they have been bold before in speaking out against them very publicly. So it makes sense that these are the guys that the crowd want to speak to, the rebels want to speak to. It's at this point that Virginius... Oh, no, oh, no. I don't think we can keep going on. I, you, you're so far ahead of me right now. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm, not. I'm, just, I'm just getting to the election. This is just the part that you just told me about. I'm just going to say, it's at this point that Virginia <laughs> says, so that was embarrassing, guys. <laughs> um, we're not going to be presenting a great front if we don't have someone who can represent us and have some sense of organisation to this group of people here. And it's here that it's recommended that 10 men should be chosen to have supreme command amongst them to be their military tribunes, obviously distinguishing them from the plebeian tribunes because they're not obviously, you know, of the city. They're, some, they're something different. They're obviously like serving in some sort of military um, capacity at this point in time. And so he's like, let's Let's choose 10 men. They, of course, naturally go, oh, well, Virginius, you have to be one of the 10. And he's like, no, 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 I shan't. I, I just couldn't. I couldn't. And this, <laughs> couldn't of course, possibly. this, of course, is, you know, the classic thing that the Romans love in their heroes, a man that can refuse power when it's offered to him, even though he so richly deserves it. <laughs> Roman matrons just fainting in the aisles over here. So he turns it down. 
And so they decide to choose 10 other people. And that's how I get to the point where you've got 10 military tributes. Uh Aha. All right. Oh, the complexities of these accounts right now. It's really fascinating to me because there's so much detail in what you've just told me that literally not on the horizon right now for Dionysus <laughs> and Halicarnassus. And so this order of the way that they tell things as well and the kinds of details that we're getting from our different sources, I think is really valuable for, for just demonstrating just how hard it was for writers much later to sort of get back into the detail of this period. And it's like, who are they reading? Where are they getting this information? And why does it not really quite slot together uh, I mean, it's also going to very well, and and maybe that's a huge bonus for us all, but it also raises so many questions about, like, the nature of source material. It does, and I kind of feel like that bit of detail from Livy, and I, I could be doing him a disservice here because it, it does make sense. It, it provides a clear cause and effect for the election of 10 military tribunes in this particular group of rebels. Although I, I feel like I shouldn't call them that because I feel like what they're doing is totally justified, but nonetheless, rebels in a good way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like Star Wars rebels. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I can see how it makes sense in terms of them realizing that they need a leader. And, and in Livy's account, things have unfolded seemingly much more rapidly. Although of course, you know, the sense of time, <laughs> time who needs that he hasn't given me a really good sense of that but it seems to be quite rapid but I also have this sneaking suspicion that this is classic Livy in the sense of he is ultimately on the side of the elite so the lines are blurring here obviously with people like um, Valerius and Horatius seeing a common cause with the you know the plebeians but I feel like this episode is just like that tiny little bit of detail that's meant to make them look foolish or meant to show why they need leaders, most specifically leaders from the elite, from the patricians, because without that, they they are a bit sheep-like. Uh, and it's not that he doesn't give us, he does give us those characters which come along every now and then, like Virginius, who, you know, are a cut above, but it, it, it almost seems to be, the message that people like Virginius are the exception, not the rule when it comes to the plebeians. And and so I kind of feel like that's a little bit what's going on here, although I could be being very unfair and that Livy's just trying to explain why they held these elections for military tribunes. But I feel like there's there's a bit of a class bias there. Quite possibly. And there might be the case that for these writers much later on as well, is that they don't fully understand the class dynamics of their own time, not even necessarily the class dynamics of the time that they're trying to study. So we've got, as a parallel to what you're telling me is happening in Livy's account, so we've got a couple of figures who start to stand out as important characters from this 10 military tribunes. One is Marcus Oppius, and the other is Sextus Malius, so what happens in Dionysius' account is that this first group um, get to the Aventine. They've come from Mount Argidum and they've selected their 10 tribunes. The standout is Marcus Oppius. But word has also gotten out to Fidine. And this is the force that was part of the demise of the Roman Achilles, Lucius Siccius Dentatus. So they're out in a different direction under five decimvirs. And they've been having a troubled time of it because they've learned about this huge betrayal of uh, the Roman Achilles and their own part in it as well. And they have also heard about the shift of the force from the south into Rome. And so they also set forth in revolution against their leaders uh, and joined them on the Mount Aventine. And they then choose their own 10 military tribunes. They're like, oh, you got 10, we got 10. And so now there's 20 military tribunes and a standout figure, Sextus Malius. I I can't gloss over this name, Dr. G. I'm sorry, we've got to pause there. See, in my <laughs> account, I do also have, interestingly enough, I, I have similar details in that we've got this second uh, group of armed forces. They are in Sabine country. They are directly affected by the murder of Sicius, so they're still upset about that. 
And then Achilles and Numitorius have gone to them. So it's like Virginius has gone in one direction and Achilles and Numitorius, um, Virginius' uncle, have gone in another and they've informed them, you know, on top of Sicius, this is what we're also dealing with here. And that's when they decide that they're going to, you know, march with their standards um, and they they actually go through Rome to get to the Aventine. So, yeah, that would have been terrifying if you were the decimers and great Everyone's if you like, weren't. Hey, well, apparently Appius Claudius is hiding at home at this stage because the city is no longer safe for him. Uh, yeah, I can't even believe he's still in Rome. What an idiot. But anyway. Um, like, and- I'm just going to be at home, guys. Um, staycation. Uh, what about it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's from this second group, it seems, that Marcus Oppius and Sextus Manilius are elected. And we can't just gloss over that name. Sextus Manilius? Sexy man! It's a sexy man! <laughs> I do like a sexy man when he comes onto the scene. Yeah. Uh, so we have some slight differences in the names, but I'm happy to run with Sextus Manliness. Is oh, we are, we are running with Sextus Manilius. We are running with sexy man. That is his new name, sexy man. <laughs> I hope he goes on to great sexy things. <laughs> oh, there is no doubt he is going to be a... Hot, sexy Flavian. <laughs> <laughs> it's about time we had some of those. Haven't been enough of them around. And this is the moment that Spurius Oppius, uh, the Decemvir who's also in Rome with Abius Claudius, summons the Senate. And this also, I mean, this is kind of pivotal for me as a historian is that uh, this is kind of basically also where Dionysius of Halicarnassus cuts off uh, <gasps> as a source. yes he's only got a few more details before he vanishes only to reappear at an unspecified time in the future oh (laughs) god i thought you meant forever (laughs) he doesn't cut off forever but he cuts off for a good chunk um all of the pertinent things um that are about to happen uh are not in dionysius's account so we've got this sense that there is the senators getting together They're all delivering their opinions. Lucius Cornelius gets up. He is the brother, potentially, of one of the other Decemvirs. He gets up and talks about a whole bunch of things. And he says that the soldiers on the Aventine should go back to their camp. And if they do that, if they return to their camp, they should not be charged. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, We'll just pretend nothing ever happened and we'll move on with our lives. But if they refuse to go back to the camp, well, things could get nasty. And that's kind of like the moment where you just get ellipsis. So I've had to switch rather rapidly to a different source. Ooh. Oh, wait for it. Let me introduce you to Diodorus Siculus. Oh, I, I have actually consulted him a couple of times. He's not the source with the best reputation. He is a source of dubious quality. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a bit of an introduction to the guy Please for our do. listeners out there. So Diodorus Siculus. Siculus here stands for the Sicilian. I had a feeling. I had a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> and he is a Greek historian. Uh, He lives quite close to Mount Etna, and then he goes to Rome in sort of the mid-first century BCE. So he's writing a long time after the period in question that we're dealing with now, which is like the 5th century. And he sort of flourishes between around about 60 to 30 BCE, and it's like, good for him. And very excitingly for us, he also decides that he's going to create a universal history. And so he sets about, he's like, I'm going to do it. Guys, from the beginning of time right up to now, it's going to be great. (laughs) 40 books, all history. People still try and do that. And we're living significantly later. So I feel like I can't laugh at him too much. (laughs) Yeah, he's going for it though. So 40 books, it's going to be fine. And what he does is he goes to all the sources that he can find. So basically his work is a compilation and an epitome of other source material that he encounters So he just sorts of reads things and and then decides what might be good and then puts them all in there. And because he's doing universal history, he gives you bits and pieces from across the Mediterranean while he's doing it. So 
each year you sort of get a little bit of Greece, a little bit of Rome, a little bit of something interesting that he came across somewhere. He'll sort of work it all in and he's going chronologically. So you're like, all right. So you kind of like strap yourselves in. And it's like, it's a highlights reel of history with Diodorus Siculus <laughs> in 40 books or more. <laughs> uh, and so he's just, he's just running with it. And I kind of love his commitment to getting the job done, but this does mean that a lot of the details that come through to us are open to question. So for instance, he does give us the names of eight of the 10 decimvirs. Most of those names are incorrect, as far as we can tell. Nice. You had one job, Diodorus. You had one job. Appius Claudius doesn't even make the list of the first decimvirs. What? <laughs> nah. Wow. Uh, he makes it onto the second list. We jump from the first decemvirate into the second decemvirate very quickly. and Well, to be fair, I mean, they were close together. I mean, they were. They were. Livia and, Dion- and Dionysius do go into an enormous amount of detail, which makes it feel like we're talking about a period of about 20 years, when actually it's probably not. We're probably talking about a period of maybe two or three years. Yeah. <laughs> it's just one with a lot of action. But what Diodorus Siculus does, which is, I think, interesting, and perhaps a testament to some of the source material he's consulting here, mm. is that he spends a lot of time on Wiginia's story. She's not named... Uh, but he does give paragraphs to her, which is more than he usually gives to, to just about anything. Yeah. And so he recounts these details of her being led into slavery, the passion for this young maiden that has arisen in one of the decimvirs, the role of Wiginius, her father. And he talks about the moment of the murder itself with a butcher's cleaver in public. Uh, which is very similar to some of the stories that we've been getting. And we also get a sense of which this leads directly to the removal of the army from Mount Agaidum, which he does name, all the way up to the Aventine, where they sort of seize that hill and make a camp and make a stand. Hmm. All right. Well, I'm going to add just a little bit more detail to that whole picture that you've got from the two Ds. <laughs> um, I'm just going to add a little bit more detail of what's happening. What's happening in the Senate. Okay. So, oh, yes, please. Yeah, yeah. So naturally they continue to be highly disturbed by the situation because now they don't just have one armed force. They've got two armed forces that have set up camp on the Aventine or so it seems. And so they're meeting every day to try and get to the bottom of, you know, what they're going to do about this situation. But this is where there's a little bit of balance from Livy. He does say that they're mostly spending the time just accusing each other of being to blame for this whole situation. So they're not getting a lot done. Um, oh, and the Senate. <laughs> yeah, classic Senate. Um, the Decimvers are naturally copying a lot of blame for this situation, which, I mean, yeah, duh. <laughs> But obviously, uh, the Des- aren't they to blame? <laughs> yeah, obviously the Decimvers are still like, what? Us? But you said we could have this much power. What is going on? Anyway, We're still finally, writing the laws, guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but finally they decide, look, 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 this is all very well and good, but we're not getting anywhere here. Why don't we just send Valerius and Horatius to the Aventine like they have requested? Okay, so... That's, that's move one. Valerius and Horatius are very clever here. They say, okay, we'll go and talk to this group of rebels, but only if the Decembers cast off the insignia of this magistracy. Oh, that's a typical word. <laughs> only if the Decembers would put off the insignia of the magistracy because, let's face it, it should have been over by now, guys. Not happy. Get out of that position. <laughs> okay. The Decembers are like, what? You're trying to take our office away from us? We will not. We most certainly will not take off our insignia. and We will not step down from authority until the laws are enacted that we were put in charge to oversee. That's what's happening here, young men or old men. Not sure how old you are, actually, now that I think about it. (laughs) And so, I mean, it's kind of amazing that after all of this, 
the Decembers are still refusing to just get out of office already. (laughs) You'll have to take it from my cold, dead hands. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. So I feel like I feel like that might be a good place to leave with the Senate being in a standoff amongst themselves. 20 military tribunes having been elected to represent the group of people on the Aventine. At least one of them being sexy. Yeah, a sexy man. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that's a good point to wrap up. What do you think? Sounds like a good plan. All right, Dr. G. Well, you know, that only means one thing. It's time for uh, the partial pick. Yes, even in lockdown, I'm able to have Igor for company. (laughs) Oh, it's so good to hear. (laughs) So we have a range of categories for the partial pick. There is a total of 50 gold eagles on offer across five different categories, each scored out of 10. We'll see how Rome went. Absolutely. All right. What is our first category, Dr. G? Our first category is military clout. Nope. Next. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. We're done here. In fact, the army ran away back to the city, guys. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't think... I don't think we can count it as military clout if they're running towards Rome. (laughs) No, and I don't think we can count a military revolution as military clout necessarily either. So as much as I'd like to give the rebels some points, it won't be in this category. They'll have their time. They'll have their time. All right. (laughs) Zero. Yes. All right. What's up next? Diplomacy. Huh. Well, Uh. look, the Senate are being somewhat more moderate than they have been previously. They did finally decide to send the two senators requested. Well, they did. They did. Uh, They haven't left yet, though. (laughs) (laughs) There's still time for that one to go wrong. All right. Well, yeah, yeah, look, I I don't think there's a lot of diplomacy going on, really. I mean, Wiginius has come with a clear, legitimate issue. Mm. And basically, the response of the Decemvirs has been like, well, let's try to arrest him before he causes any more trouble. Yeah. Hardly diplomatic. And even in my account, where arrest isn't specifically mentioned, they're certainly running around trying to stop any conversations or re- rebellions from happening. So. <laughs> Keep that in your heart. Keep that inside your head. If you don't say it, it doesn't become true. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Not really the hallmark of diplomacy, I think, that we're looking for. No. I feel like this is also a zero for me. I think me. it might be, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. Next category. Third category is expansion. Uh-uh. <laughs> if anything, we're going backwards, guys. <laughs> yeah, they're just like retaking a part of the city for themselves, being like, this is our territory now. I am the captain now. <laughs> I have the talking stick, so I'm doing the talking. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah look, expansion is a zero. I think yeah. I think that's fairly fair. Yeah, and, right. and because, because the army has like up sticks, I mean, Rome might be losing territory for all we know. They are technically meant to be fighting people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a problem. And the centurions have mentioned that uh, lands that are conceivably Roman are being torched while they watch from a distance. So it's a bit of a problem right excellent, now. Excellent, excellent. That's definitely a zero then. <laughs> mm. All right. All right. This leaves us into Virtus. Okay. Now mm. I think we have something to play mm. with here. Yes. yes. Virginius definitely has some stuff going on here it's pretty terrible that we've gotten to a point where roman weirtus is partly defined by being willing to take courageous actions that lead to you murdering your own daughter absolutely but i think this is meant to show us obviously the twisted nature of the second december it 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 is a virtuous act uh, for a father to be looking out for the virtue of his children, to be looking out for 
uh, their well-being in his own way, I suppose, you know? This is a very Roman conceptualization of patriarchal structures, and you yeah. can see that how they filter down into the modern world because uh, under no circumstances are we advocating that this kind of behavior is okay. Oh, God, no. Um, yeah. But from a Roman perspective in this particular period of their history, there is a sense in which the power of the father to hold life and death of his children is one thing. Rarely is it executed, um, but in this case it is, and it's done so as a preservation tactic. And it's something that we can see with the way that the Roman soldiery react positively to Wiginius's calls for revolution in the in the aftermath of this, that they read it too as a moment of weirtus. Yeah, and it is because, as, as we talked about before, Wirtus involves usually taking some kind of action. And in this case, it, it is almost meant to be a, a symbolic blow against the decemvirate who don't have that, that same moral code. They, they aren't upholding the, the values of Rome as they should. And we've talked about this, obviously, in the previous episode where we covered the actual murder itself. But it is unfortunate that often women are brought into this equation as being the thing that has to die or the thing that has to be despoiled or something like that in order for this realisation to happen that, oh, these guys really are that bad. The situation is that terrible. Um, it's, it's, it's something that almost needs to happen in these sorts of accounts, at least the way that the stories are constructed. And yeah, yeah. Given yeah. that these stories are a way of Romans exploring their values as yes. well. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is exactly it. And it is also the way that Virginius represents it in both your speech and mine. It definitely is a blow against his personal family, his private space, his house, his dormus, you know. Um, his, and so the, that being framed in that way, you know, it, it could have come from anywhere. I suppose it could have it could have been a number of actions that finally were that that affront that crossed a boundary. But it's most easily seen, I think, when the women of the house are attacked because the man is in charge of looking after them and also regulating their behaviour. And so it kind of, I think, makes sense to use a woman in a Roman storytelling sense. You know, when they're t- telling stories about themselves. All right. So this leaves us with how much weird to us. How are we going to credit with this? Because I, I feel like uh, it's it, it's complicated. Uh, Look, it is complicated, but I think we do have to stick to our, our understanding in that we're judging Romans by their own standards in this category because otherwise we would always think that they were the worst. <laughs> they would never get anywhere. They were the worst, guys, literally. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think we have to look at this. And, and this is, again, it's, it, it is that thing we have to remember. It is meant to be something that is shameful that this conflict is entering a civil space. You know, it shouldn't be happening, and that's kind of the point. Um, so it's not that the Romans think that the murder of Virginia is a good thing, but it, it is just sort of it, what Virginius has done to try and counteract this awful thing that's happened that shouldn't be happening. That is a good thing. And to be honest, if you think about it from this point of view as well, if he had allowed his daughter to become the slave of Appius Claudius, let's be under no illusions that she would have had a happy life either. Now, I'm not saying that no life is better than a life, but slavery, obviously, in the classical world is not an enviable state by any means. I mean, if if Appius had won and she had become his slave, he is allowed to do anything to her, anything. So I can kind of understand that from some people's perspective, that death might be preferable to slavery, especially since Appius Claudius is meant to be a horrible tyrant with no check on his appetites. So I kind of feel like for me, it's going to be like a nine. Oh, wow. Okay. Nine it is. All right. All right. Nine. (laughs) Then that leads us to our final category, Dr. G. The final category is the citizen score. What would it have been like to be a citizen in this time period? Would it be good? Would you want to be there? 
I feel like this is definitely an improvement. We still haven't got to the phase where it's like amazing or anything. <laughs> no citizens have been murdered in this episode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel like this is pretty positive because we've definitely got action being taken. We've got a rebellion in the making, definitely. Um, this could this could also be more dangerous for Roman citizens, though, than true. anything else. Yeah. Um, it's just kind of teetering on the brink of the potential to go either way. Absolutely. I, I kind of get the sense, though, from the way that Livy is pitching it in my account, is that they've already attracted some civilians to their cause. You know, I mean, as I said in the beginning, Virginius obviously was followed by some civilians when he set out for the army to make his speech. Like, some people obviously wanted to come after him and certainly I'm getting the sense that they're already starting from the Aventine to call on the citizens to come and join them and you know because this is essentially what we're talking about isn't it? they're basically starting to say we are we, we need to secede from the state because that's kind of this episode that we're moving into the second December giving rise to this thing called the second secession where once again we have I guess we could call them plebeians opting out of the Roman state because it's just not representing their interests anymore and they, they just don't see any point of being a part of this. Now, as always, it's highly problematic to try and pin down what's the difference between like a civilian and a plebeian because they might not be the same thing at this point in time. Plebeians might be their own class. They might be other people who are civilians who are not patrician or plebeian. But either way, I think that the plebeians at this point in time are clearly aligning themselves with the general populace of Rome because everybody's suffering under the second decemvirate. Yeah, um, I, I take all of that on board. I'm just not sure that we can necessarily say that things are going well for citizens. Not well, I, I but promising. I yeah, I don't think, yeah. and I don't think we've seen anything to suggest that there's been an improvement in their situation. Anyway, it's just that things haven't gone terribly for them. No, but I think I think there point. would be there's got to be some sort of a morale boost from seeing that you've actually got like the military somebody standing up for us for yeah. a change. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I feel like you know you've got people like Valerius and Horatius who have spoken out against the December. So you've actually got people in the elite themselves who are finally breaking away and saying, "Nah, this isn't this isn't okay, and we're not for it." And then you have actually got some people with weapons, with military experience, who are also saying, uh-uh, this is not okay. And you should come and join us so that we can all show them who's boss. That's got to be at least a morale boost, if nothing else. And so I feel like it's got to be like a two at least. <laughs> actually, I was going to give them about like three or four. So ah, there you go. Let's go. I'm happy to go for that. It's just you made me feel very, very down about the situation. <laughs> I just wanted that justification. Yeah, well, let, let's get let's go for a three because you're right. We haven't had a lot of chat from the average person at this point in time, so we'll go for a three. So, Doctor G, uh, non unsurprisingly, given that we're still in the we're in the twilight of the second December it here, once again, Rome hasn't fared particularly well, but they have managed to score themselves twelve golden eagles. Wow, twelve! All right, not bad. It's not bad. Yeah, look, above 10, anything above 10 right now is a great score for Rome, I would say. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I look forward to seeing how this second secession and the second December, it all pans out next time. Oh, yeah, there's more to come. <laughs> yeah, and I for I, I know there'll be people out there. I just feel like, yes, we have to emphasize this. That is correct. Appius Claudius is not dead. <laughs> no. He, He's not Keep dead yet. He's not dead yet. <laughs> the man lives. The man yeah. lives. <laughs> Until next time. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Partial Historians. I am Dr. G. And on behalf of both myself and Dr. Rad, we'd like to send a huge thank you out to all of our beautiful patrons, longtime supporters and newcomers alike. Our patrons enjoy early release, special episodes, exclusive blog posts, and each one of them allows us 
to build a little more quality into our work. Knowing that our work enriches your life is huge for us. So thank you for your support. We're sending our special thanks this episode out to CW, Dana, Elise, Ensley, and Flora. Thank you so much. We'll catch you again soon.